Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Did you miss us? We've missed you. That's the truth. We're here for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Reason number one is we have a conversation with Jesse Armstrong for you. The second thing is, what will your old pals Firecrutch and Normcore do next? Well, we have an idea. We have a, an ember. We have a glowing ember of momentum. These these metaphors don't feel that they're gelling very well. Hang on, isn't an ember something right at the end of a fire as it's dying out? Oh, so we have a spark. I hope so. Don't start a fire. Don't start a fire without a spark. Um, so anyway, we have a spark. We hope it's a spark and not an ember, but let's see. Oh my God, that is exactly what the fuck this is. Yes. We have something and we are hoping it's a spark <laughs> and not an ember. And I imagine that across the next year, we will figure that out. Painfully or otherwise. Painfully or otherwise. So to address those two things in order, this conversation with Jesse Armstrong happened at the Orwell Festival. It was hosted by the Orwell Foundation. It's a recording of an event they did. We were the hosts. Jesse was the guest. And it was about politics and drama. But really, I think it is a wide-ranging conversation about Jesse's career with a lot about succession because that audience, I would say we're bit more succession fan heavy. That's not to say there were Orwell haters in the room. Right. We thought it was going to be a bunch of Orwell people. And um, it was people who showed up to look at Jesse Armstrong. And do you want to tell people what Jesse was wearing? Well, I will tell you what happened. <laughs> I don't remember what he was wearing, but here's what I do remember. Mm-hmm. We had to get mic'd up. Now, the last time we'd seen Jesse, I dear Jesse him. Generally, I've spoken in very, 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 very sexual terms about him. So then when I'm actually in front of him, I feel you have said to me, oh, you're uh, treating him mean and keeping him keen. Like I try you to give... You more aloof than you usually are. It's because I think I need to give him a wide berth to be like, <laughs> I'm a normal person and I'm going to be very respectful of boundaries <laughs> if I'm not doing a podcast or I'm not on a stage. So we're getting mic'd up and... The guy who was putting the mics on us basically asked him to lift his shirt. I was like a man with a woman in the room who was going to breastfeed. I was like, you have to look away when his body is exposed. And then something happened. I'm, I'm, I want to say 80% sure where I think his t-shirt went up much higher than it was supposed to. And I was like, you're with 
his exposed torso. <laughs> was He's it, full what, torso visible what, right now, but I had to look away so that he felt respected and safe. Was it like the episode at the Gojo retreat in Norway where Matson just lifts his T-shirt up? No, it was a little more than that, I think. But, you know, in your periphery, you kind of know what's going on if you're hyper aware. And I was like, that just went up by like another foot. And a foot on a torso is a lot of space. You know, um, those police artists who they use when somebody describes a suspect. Maybe you could get one of those people who describe Jesse's torso to them. I didn't see it, though. This is my whole point. I just knew that it was near me. It's like I felt it. Okay. I felt it. How was its presence? It was. Do you know, want to know something interesting? It was sweet. What adjective would you use to describe my torso? Sweet. Okay. Seems like me and Jesse are being put in the friend column. Well, you weren't in my friend column last night, and he wouldn't be in my friend column if he was, you know, I, I'm losing my energy, but you know what I'm okay, trying to say. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I really, one of my uh, uh, mission statements, I want to be done objectifying people on succession. I think me objectifying people is over. Let's see about that. Maybe it'll be over the way that my singing was over, which is to say <laughs> not, but I just don't think other people really bring it out of me okay, in the well. same way. Come on, we, we need focus here. Okay. You're, you're the one who, by the way, for the last couple of weeks has been doing the whole big news is coming on social media because I know you knock about with a lot of people from Generation Z, is it? I think Generation Z and... and, and they like to tell you that big news is coming. It's not that big. Well, look, in everyone's defense, our news is not that big. But I've seen people be like, you guys, big news, watch this space. I'm like, what is the news? Is it a Netflix special? Is it Taskmaster? What is it? And then it'll be like, I'm doing a podcast. I'm like, that's not, uh, yeah, what, who? It would be bigger news if you weren't doing a podcast. <laughs> the big news is so, so I'm uh, not doing a podcast. So having identified this as an annoying trait in other people. Big news. <laughs> I decided to do a tour. Big news. Having decided it's annoying when other people have done it, you think, oh, well, we better do that as well then. Yeah, I know. So here we are. So we don't like really have big news. <laughs> it was such a mistake on my part because then um, like friends and family, literal family members of mine, your family members are disengaged, I don't care, but a couple of my family members and then some of my, like my best friend was like, what's your news? And I was like, oh, I don't have any news. It's just what young people do when I'm trying to be like them. <laughs> Well, we don't have no news. No, it's I mean, just, we it's could not just say no news, news is good news. And then no, here's, here's big news. The big news is the answer to the question, what <laughs> next for Firecrotch and Normcore? It's the only question anyone has thought about during Glastonbury, during what's going on in Russia. Can you just summarise what's going on in Russia for me? I think it's unprecedented. <laughs> I was listening to the podcast, but taking a shower at the same time, catching every other word, and I'm not that politically minded to begin with, so it's pretty sketchy. But it's in Russia, and it's big. I was I was, I was curious to see what, what kind of grasp you have on that. No, do you know what? It was funny. As I was showering, I was like, Jeff, Jeff is going to ask me what they were talking about. I'm like, I don't know, Russia? <laughs> so just re listen to this again this evening. So our slightly hyperbolic big news is the answer to the question, what next for Firecrotch and Normcore? What will you two do next now that Succession has finished? Yes. And we have the answer for you. Yes. In short, it's a podcast. You don't need to go anywhere else to find it. It is a continuation of this podcast feed. Shall we unveil the title? Yes, we shall. The new title is, and I'll tell you right now, we're proud of it, so don't hurt our fucking feelings if you don't like it. Positive feedback or no feedback at all. New title is Firecrotch and Normcore. They like to watch.
okay, I've done my incredible delivery of the new title. You do a great elevator pitch of what tis. Anytime you see someone, maybe it's for drinks, maybe it's another couple for dinner, maybe it's waiting at the school gates. The question is always, what are you guys watching at the moment? We're after something good to watch. This is going to be the podcast that answers that question. Here's how it's going to be different from every other TV recap, review, preview podcast. It's us. It's your old friends, Firecrunch and Normcore, and our taste is very good. You want some snobs to tell you what's good. Not people who are easily satisfied. You know how someone recommends something to you and you're like, but you're not me. And so you would like that, but you're dumb. So what you think doesn't matter, (laughs) we're the people who matter. We're here to tell you what to watch. And that, you know, the the thought that underpins all of this is what succeeds succession, right? Because the bottom line is we can just sit around and moan about how nothing will ever satisfy again. And that's kind of true. Or we can pick up our panties like big girls, and be like, okay, so now what do we watch? And just get on with our sad, sad lives that we will try to inject with meaning by finding you some acceptable television. So every week we will have for you a rattle through what we've been watching. Mm-hmm. We will then go a bit deeper into something we think merits it. But we, what Jeff, I'm saying to you, as I say to our listeners, we must remember to be honest. It is God's work if we stay true to ourselves. And if there's a week where we're like, we have to say it, unless there's a comedian in it who could eventually get me work, and then I won't be honest. So I'm telling you that right now. (laughs) Listen, remember this moment. Remember this moment. If there is a UK-based comedian in a show that we are talking about, I might not be honest with what I think. But unless it is somebody who you risk interacting with or somebody who could in some way benefit your career, you're going to pull no punches and you're going to shoot from the hip. You can take no prisoners. I will take no prisoners unless there's a personal cost to me, at which point (laughs) I will take some. Um, we're also hoping to invite some interesting people on. Listen, we're we're building back up again. I have some ideas already. I don't know if any of them will be good, but um, I got some ideas. And then I think the other element of this is we want you to be as much a part of it as we are. So we will need leads. We'll need your help because we can't watch everything, can we? Yeah. So like if you watch something that you think is good, you'll message to let us know. If we say something that you think is stupid or brilliant, you message to let us know. And you know what? Like a thing about succession that was nice was this sense that other people were invested in something that you were invested in. So what if we can really establish a sense of a gang, a little community of people who we were the people who fucking loved succession. And now we are together on the mission of entertaining ourselves with stuff that isn't fucking terrible. I think part of what you're saying is this this sense of superiority that we had as being the people who watched and truly got succession. Let's see if we can't stay bonded by that same sense of superiority. Yes. So in other words, keep listening, even if you were only here for succession. All right. Next question is when? You tell me, buddy boy. I think we need a couple of weeks just to dot a few I's, cross a few T's. Okay. So I am seeing the first episode arriving in your feed during week 28, which is the week commencing the 10th of July. Okay. Yeah. That sounds reasonable. That's two weeks. And then we're off forever. 
No, actually, we are not off until forever. We are not going to do this if people don't listen to it. Jeff holds himself to a high standard. This is not a problem for me, but it is a problem for him. So I'm a comedian who just needs a fucking podcast. So I have like people who fucking come to a tour show that I can do and I can make some money for my goddamn life suck of a family. (laughs) But Jeff has different standards. So if you are listening and you like it, you need to find people to listen to it too. But if you don't do what I'm saying and you don't help our audience to grow, we're not going to be here one day. There's going to be a day you wake up and we won't be there for you anymore. This doesn't just go on indefinitely. This goes on indefinitely. If you tell people about us, tweet it, Insta, tell your friends, tell 10 friends, tell them to tell their friends. If that doesn't happen, we will go away. And Jeff will be upset. I had to work so fucking hard to convince him to do this. And he wasn't going to do it. And he wouldn't listen to me. And then guess who said that they thought it was a really good idea? Jesse. <laughs> I'm not joking. Shut up. Shut up. I'm not joking. I was like, I think this is good. You know, I got a team. Okay. I got a fucking agent. My agent was like, this is a good idea. People were fucking, yeah. Yeah. Jeff's like, no, shitty, shitty. No, I'm not doing it. And then Jesse was like, this is really good. Now, was he being nice to us? Very possibly. He strikes me as a kind person. Jesse said to do it. Jeff thought, maybe this isn't the worst thing that's ever occurred to my wife. But what I'm telling you is, is if it goes badly, he was right all along and we go away. You do not want to hear the podcast that I will make on my own. (laughs) You have no idea how bad it would be. (laughs) And I don't want to be exposed in that way, okay? All right, salient points. It's called... Firecrutch and Normcore. They like to watch. It's coming. Within two weeks. And we need... Your ears. So that is our overhyped big news. Can you believe it? We made the decision to keep doing our own podcast. (laughs) What? One last question to answer before we bring you this Jesse conversation. Mm -hmm. Is that it for you guys in succession? You want to know if we're going to do seasons one and two. And the answer to that is just just hold your nerve mm-hmm. because there's something, something, there's, there's something afoot. You guys are always begging us to rewatch seasons one and two. But what Jeff has felt is that there's not a way to do it well. He hasn't been able to figure out a way to do it well. We think we have maybe scored a way to do it well. We can't confirm that until it's happened. Okay, the rebirth happens in a couple of weeks. It's not a rebirth, baby. What is it? Crossfade. We're crossfading. We're not rebirthing. We're crossfading. Is it like a form of puberty for the podcast? No. Menopause? No. Not puberty, not Not rebirth, not menopause. Crossfade. And we hope you enjoy this. It was recorded on the 15th of June at the Cruciform Theatre at the University College London. It's us on stage with Jesse Armstrong at the Orwell Festival, talking politics and drama. Would you just join me in welcoming to the stage uh, succession creator and showrunner Jesse Armstrong. How are you self-esteem? Yeah. Uh, it's good. It's very nice for, to hear all that. And um, yeah, no, it's nice to be here. Um, how have your last couple of weeks been? Yeah, good. I've been, uh, um, <laughs> I've been uh, less busy. 
Um, all right, Jesse, listen. It felt appropriate, considering the setting, to begin with an Orwell quote. This is something I Googled today. <laughs> okay. Orwell said, <laughs> if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. With that in mind, we all fucking hate you for not writing a season five. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you Orwell's four great motives for writing, uh -huh. and you're gonna tell me if any of them apply to this guy. Number one, sheer egoism. Well, you know, um, uh, <laughs> writers are curious, right? You know, TV writers, prose writers, and they're, you know, they, uh, I can't remember who once described it to me as the writers being a bit like, don't look at me, don't look at me, look at me. <laughs> and that, so, yeah, there's a little, you know, that we, we are often not that comfortable in the limelight, and yet you work really hard to try and get your stuff and your thoughts out in the world, so there is a bit of So that's egoism. what we saw all of that when you walked out on stage. Look at me, look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me, look at me, don't look at me. Aesthetic enthusiasm? Aesthetic, yeah. That, so wanting things to be good, wanting to make good things, yeah, that's in there. Historical impulse? Historic, well, you, as the Orwell scholar, break down the historical yeah. impulse for me. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but it's on my note card. <laughs> the, I don't, I, uh, I can't remember in the essay what, that, what historical impulse means, so I mean... Strike it. You uh, can just... <laughs> what does it mean to you, Jessica? <laughs> I guess it, if, if it means wanting to um, put your stuff into the culture, then yes. Yeah, historical impulse like that. You're Jesse Armstrong. That sounded right <laughs> to me. Um, political purpose. Well, yeah. Well, that maybe maybe that's what I thought. What hi historical impulse was. Uh, uh, but you could say it's two bits to potential political impulse: being pissed off about things that are happening in the political arena, or feeling impelled to write because of political feelings, and then there's wanting to change things, and they're two separate things. And the the second one, you maybe have to be wary of the degree to which you can do that anyway. So I think... What, what about, we... there's some lie I want to expose. Could that be the political impulse? <laughs> yeah, we'll put that under political, in, political purpose. Sorry, yes. Um, t tell us about the, the quote that you fired back when you were invited to do this event about every joke being a tiny revolution. It, it, you know, you, sometimes you, in life, right, you pick up a few things which seem true to you and you keep hold of them, and that's one. There's a lot in Orwell, and I'm sure everyone who's read him a bit, there's, there's something for everyone in there, and you can usually find a sort of opposite uh, version of an impulse uh, or a formulation. But that one just struck me as true. Like, when people try and talk about humour and comedy in a theoretical way, um, it can often be surprisingly boring and it can be very hard but I guess that one just struck me as being a little bit more true than most of the other things when people say comedy is this or comedy is that it's always this, it's always that and you think no, that's not Vic and Bob that's not, that's not Blackadder whereas every, every joke being a tiny revolution strikes me yeah, you can think of things where you're like I don't see the revolution in Del Boy falling through the bar there but, <laughs> but, but, but actually that you know, in the broadest sense, it is it's like a little upturning of expectation, right? So from the 
it seems like a seems like a good quote. Did you grow up in a political household? Like, were you? Is it like that we're around the Armstrong dinner table and people are talking about the big ideas? Not in the way that people maybe normally think about that. I, was, I grew up in the countryside in Shropshire, um, but there was a bit of where I grew up that had a bit of a countercultural influence. So quite a lot of hippies had sort of migrated west into the countryside on the borders with Wales in the 60s and 70s. And so there was a sort of sub-community within the larger community of hippie-ish or hippie-aligned or hippie-comfortable people. And my, 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 my parents would probably, they, prob- they would probably hate to be thought of as hippies. But they're hippie tolerant. They were certainly very hippie tolerant. <laughs> <laughs> they were fucking hippies all over the place. <laughs> but they're, but they're educators, right? My dad was a teacher, yeah, and my mum later worked in nurseries and things. So, yeah, the, and they were politically engaged and talked about politics a bit. It wasn't a commune or even close, but it was, they were, it was a little bit self-sufficient at times. And what does that it's a good mean? Like the good life. Yeah. A little bit like the good life, but it wasn't in suburbia. There were chickens and, you know, there was, like, oh weighing the vegetables. And Have like, you ever killed a chicken with your bare hands? No. They, no, they were, we were vegetarian. They were ex-battery hens. Oh. <laughs> Liberated by the Armstrongs. Are you still a vegetarian? Yeah. And you've been a vegetarian your whole life? For a little bit, I tried meat. And? Morrissey told me to stop. Well. I don't do everything Morrissey says anymore. (laughs) I do nothing he says anymore. Um, When you were working as a special advisor, what are you, like, in your 20s when this is happening? Yeah. And was that a day job to sort of appease your parents? I wasn't to appease my folks who were always good at sort of just being pleased anything was happening. But yeah, it was, uh, I wasn't really a special advisor in the, it was when Labour were in opposition and I was, I think I would have been called a researcher. So I was pleased to work for the Labour Party. It was before the 97 election, and it, it, I, I wanted there to be a change of government. And I was also pleased to do something which I'd been work doing sort of uh, jobs like washing up and working in off licenses and stuff. And it was quite nice to have something to tell people that sounded like the beginning of a career, even though I, I don't think I ever thought it was the beginning of a career or that I would stay in politics. How long were you in that job before you started writing and you knew that you were? Not long. And me and my writing partner, Sam, who, who I've written with most of my career, we were, we were starting to write then. We'd met at university and we put sending things back into. Um, so I only did I, did, I worked initially for no money for a bit. And then I worked probably for probably no more than a year before the election. And then that experience, I mean, later Armando Iannucci sort of handpicked you as he's developing the, uh, the thick of it and then the film In the Loop. Do you think that experience was particularly valuable or could you have picked it up from the culture anyway? I think you could, a, lot of it, a lot of that show, I think you could have picked up from the culture and from reading books, which we did and I did a lot about New Labour. I wasn't really ever at the highest level of politics, although I did at the 1996 conference walk around the corner into Tony Blair before he went to give his speech, and he was in a um, tracksuit, like a full tracksuit, and I was like, oh, he's sort of, this is what he does, this is how he relaxes, and then he, then he puts the suit on for public appearances, but it wasn't, he'd been doing headers with um, uh, Kevin Keegan uh, in a Newcastle strip, and he'd come from a photo op, uh, so... so 
that was my only interchange with high-level power, thinking, thinking that Tony Blair was a bit like Tony Soprano off, off stage. <laughs> I think that the things that were really useful about it were um, I didn't feel like I was completely bullshitting when you're writing those scenes. One of the dangers of all uh, writing is writing a version of the film you've seen about that subject, writing the second-hand version of it, the political satire that you've seen before. You can end up writing that uh, rather than trying to stick closer to the truth. And you can get through that with the research and imagination, but I think it really helped me that I was like, oh, you know what, that, it, it just looks like that. They're just people. And also, I, I think I remember feeling quite a scary sense in some ways when you look back on it of your personality, your individuality slightly being erased by your role, that you become the role that if you work at Tory HQ, however you go in at the beginning of the day, after working there for six months, you start to take on the views of that organisation. You end up being what your job is in That's some so ways. That's so interesting because that plays out Are in succession. Are we back to, to uh, George? I was thinking it's a bit Orwellian to uh, have your personality erased by your job. Oh my gosh, job. that is. Yes. to bring it back. And, and you see in succession with Greg, who I don't think he's strongly ideological, but he has the values of his generation. But everything from the trappings of wealth, rather than going to a California pizza kitchen, to congratulating a, a, a fascist on seemingly winning an election, that, that's what happens to him over the course of the series. Yeah, and it doesn't happen to everyone, and a George Orwell wouldn't go in and start talking ATN talking points, but probably. But a Greg, if you go in a little uncertain of what your values are, it's very hard to resist starting to share the point of view of the people who are paying you uh, and the people you're surrounded by the whole time, you just, it infuses you. Because early on, I, f I feel that because succession breaks these dramatic conventions in a way and people weren't expecting that. So they were looking for the good guy. And I, th I think they projected that onto Greg. But into the second series, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I, I always have a tough time sort of talking about the um, criticism of the show that it's sort of like everyone's horrible, so how can you care? And I, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, um, being um, necessarily confrontational when I say I just don't care about that. <laughs> but <laughs> I, 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 and, it, and I couldn't care less. <laughs> I, mean, it, it, I mean, I would have been disappointed if people hadn't liked the show or carried on watching it. But that's, that's the show and that's the people we're dealing with and oh. we're not going to parachute in someone who's going to come and dismantle ATN from the inside. That's not the show. And, 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 in, and indeed, I, I think I have more and possibly overdeveloped level of sympathy. I don't... Logan is a difficult... He's the, you know, the, mo, the media mogul. So I think Logan is, a, is out on his own. But everyone else in the show has the battle between uh, human decent impulses that they have and the weight of history, culture, but, and also their particular um, psychological makeup, which has been brought on them through no fault of their own, and all this money, which has also been brought on them through no fault of their own. And how do you survive under those pressures, and what room for free will or manoeuvre have you still got when, you know, those 
pressures uh, are, are forcing in on you. So I, I'm a bit more sympathetic to the characters than other people in some ways. I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have another Orwell quote for you. <laughs> Jesse. <laughs> so if, if there's this idea, it's Orwellian, not a big deal, that there's no keeping politics out of writing, do you think that's true with um, a show like Peep Show? Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, I think he said, didn't he, all art is propaganda, and it depends what you mean by that, but I think it's useful to beware that whatever you're doing is probably supporting some version of a set of ideas, which I, I guess is how I would take that. So I, I would say... Uh, Succession has more elements of what you might think of as political satire and Peep Show of more social satire, but I would be unhappy if, the, if it wasn't having a critical attitude to the social attitudes that it portrays. It's, you know, it's, a bit, it's a little bit about men and how men are in yeah. the world, quite a lot about that. Yeah. So, yeah, I would subscribe to that view. Can we just ask you a bunch of succession stuff before we come on to questions from the audience? Yes. Have you, in, in your research for succession, have you gotten to speak personally to any billionaires? Uh, I, ha- I think I have. I did a lot of research for the show, but very little face-to-face. I'd occasionally have a, a lunch with a powerful person and feel like I got to the heart of something <sighs> and look at your notebook at the end and it said, like, Sumner Redstone loves a deal. <laughs> and, and I... But you, when you're there with this really powerful or rich person and they're saying, and then he was here and he went over there and guess what, he hates peanuts, but he flew over there and, and then they put in the deal and it went like that and you're like, oh my, oh God, my God, this is it, I'm finding it all out. <laughs> and you're so much better to read the biography. I mean, maybe, like I was saying about the little bit of the flavour to know what's in the room, to see what the architecture might be like, but you can see that also in magazines and books. So I was always wary of the false insideriness that you might get and the slightly seductive thing about it so I like the cooler version and also I didn't although the show you know has relationships to people in the real world I was never very interested in like finding out something about a real person and then putting a version of it in the show to like piss them off I think we could think of funnier things than that in the writer's room and put them in and it wasn't the aim to to do a hit job on any individuals in episode two, when Logan gives his speech on the floor of ATN and he stands on the box, that is a Rupert Murdoch thing. That yes. is. These yes. are these little things. Oh, oh yeah, sure. So we're like, come on. Oh, yeah. There were, there were things like that. We took lots, lots of stuff from the world, tons like, of visual things and speeches and like uh, when Shiv, Shiv announces some bad news at a press conference, no spoilers, uh, we, had, we can't cater at this uh, point. Like, it's some very bad news. Uh, she. <laughs> it's, it, we, we'd, we'd watched uh, Ghislaine Maxwell talking after her father's death. So we took loads of stuff from the world. <laughs> I, I guess what we weren't interested in hearing, oh, have you yeah. heard this about this person? And then the kind of gossip which you don't quite know about, and then putting some story which might feel pointed or insidery that wasn't a a game that right. I wanted us to play. One, one of the key things about Succession is, is I guess, the, the empathy and, and the way that you understand their motivations while still understanding the, the damage they're wreaking on society so often. So in, in, in that 
research it in. No, like no one's walking around thinking they're like Mr. Burns rubbing their hands together and thinking they're the bad guy. Did, did you get much of a sense of how people justify mm. either the inequality or the, the, their actions and um, the, the repercussions on society? Well, I think uh, I, would, I would strongly support your view that no one thinks they're Mr. Burns. I think y- 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 there are a few maybe psychopathic figures who literally have no regard for the rest of humanity. But I don't think that's the quality of most of the people on which the show was based. I guess my sense of people is you have an intellectual framework, and if you're often on the right, it's strongly focused around ideas of freedom and liberty and of people being valued for their hard work. And I'm on the left, so I like communal action and high taxes but I think it's a very useful intellectual and human exercise to think about how the right sees the world and the things which are valuable about that point of view so I guess when you're writing you have to be able to inhabit all those points of view and I would hope that the variety of show that we write in my view has a political attitude that is in me and my fellow writers in the room. If it is ever evident or too evident, I think the show would fall apart as a piece of propaganda. It has to be um, everywhere evident but nowhere visible. That's the way we need to approach it. And I, and, I, and I was very keen for us not to look down on intellectually the characters who have a different ideological viewpoint and to try and f- try to imagine the world from their point of view, politically and also psychologically but then then the sort of opposite of it not being propaganda you you because you're so kind and empathetic in the in the writing of the characters there's a risk i guess it looks apologist and is that why episodes like the uh, america decides election night episode or uh, episode where where they're anointing the next republican candidate do you, do you feel that that from a structural point of view you're putting those in there to to balance that a little bit Balance? No. That would be a terrible way to approach an episode. Now, now this week, we're going to do the episode which balances... Um, so you're not trying to remind us that oh, you like them, but... Not remind you. I guess we're trying to show the people in their full extent and the, the reason... In William Shawcross wrote the, the authorised biography of Murdoch and when, it was, when Harry Evans from the Sunday Times, who left the Murdoch empire, made a lot of criticisms of working for Murdoch. Shawcross said, you know, you wouldn't be going on about all these deficiencies if they ran a sausage factory. And his riposte was, well, they're not running a sausage factory, right? They're running the media. And that's why the show is interested in these people, because they are, I'm not that interested in billionaires per se. I'm interested in these ones because of the power that they wield. Therefore, I wanted to do a number of episodes where we see how those feelings come out or how their personal relationships and their ideological backgrounds inform their actions in the world. We have this um, game that we play in our marriage and it's called, um, it's called Hero versus Cunt. And the idea is that you just think of someone that you know uh-huh. and you have to identify them 
is either a hero or a cunt. <laughs> and there's no middle ground. Are um, they people you know personally? Yes, you have to know them per. What? It's, that's a tough game. It's an amazing game. I would like to highly recommend it. And I was just thinking that one of the things I got from Succession is that everyone is a hero and a cunt. That, that, that's not bad. That's, yeah. you know, that's I probably that's, close to my there's view. Ma- I feel there's many things it's about, and that's one of them. You don't love it. Well, uh, <laughs> I guess, oh, I don't know whether to start articulating this long, boring thought, but... We love you. <laughs> I guess what, I'm really interested in people's psychology, I'm very keen on people behaving decently to one another, but in the end, there, there is, there's sometimes when people talk about the show, and when I've engaged with the things people say about it, there's a sense that uh, they're all as bad as each other, and that's not my view. I think, you know, oh. we're, there's lots of faulted people in this show, and people you wouldn't want to be married to or have in charge of your newspapers, but there's a great big difference between somebody who's a hypocritical piece of shit, doesn't have a good relationship, and then tries to do the right thing on election night with somebody who doesn't and fundamentally doesn't give a fuck. And those two qualities, I think, are quite important. And I, I don't share the view that some people do that, like, it, you know, if you're, per- if you're personally somewhat faulted, then all bets are off and you're all... I would never use the... You- you put it in your show. They're all <laughs> No. <laughs> Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's, um, let's take some questions. Uh, I want to find Andy, who had a question. Hello. So in the last season's election episode, we saw uh, Roman having shown more empathy throughout the season, I would suggest, lurch to the right. But then we also see Shiv having become meaner during the season, in my view, um, lurch to the left. Um, my question is, what are your views on the links between morality, personality, and political opinion? Um, so Roman is pretty explicitly 
from the beginning of the show, clearly on the right and somewhat racist, from right at the beginning of the show, and I don't think he ever changes, though, the, the way he talks, the language he is prepared to use and encouraging others. He is nihilistic. He's nihilistic. Um, so I don't think there's anything surprising about the way he acts. It, uh, people find him attractive. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> Didn't you say? You did? he is. Yeah, he's very attractive. People find that I guess that nihilistic thing can be attractive, and I think of it as a very modern quality of seeming to be able to say something and not say it at the same time, which mm. lets a lot of us off the hook. Mm. A certain sort of person is able to say something awful and with their personality wink that you don't have to be complicit in the awful thing because I'm also letting you deny it. But they also said it, um, and that's Roman. Shiv, yeah, I think that's what I was trying to address, actually. She has a journey in the, in the end in this show. She ends up supporting uh, a version of the world which would be amenable to a very right-wing candidate, and that's a journey and a choice that she makes because of, the, because of her psychology. But I would go much softer on her. If people find her hypocritical, I would say, yeah, you know, who's casting the first stone? Like, she, at the start... She's working for a left candidate, and he's not great, and he makes grubby deals. But, you know, LBJ, New Labour, who, who hasn't had to make an accommodation or done something people wish they hadn't. So I have a lot of time for people who do good in the world and, guess what, are also not perfect people because that seems like one way of getting some progress rather than us being Romans and saying, uh, because you're not... 100% clean, you're, you're dirty, let's get all get in the filth and roll around together. That seems like a pretty dangerous route. We had another question. What was your name was again? Lee. Lee. Hello, Lee. Hi, I, I'm, it's, it's great to be here, thank you. I'm really interested in finding out about the representation influence of gender politics within succession, particularly those last few episodes where Logan couldn't fit a whole woman in his head and that last scene with Tom and Shiv where she places her hand on top of, of his. And I just wondered to what extent gender politics influence the outcomes of succession. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's something we thought about a lot in the room, which has, hopefully I'm thinking about those issues. It's got a lot of smart women in the room. And so we talked about those things a lot. We talked about how... It's just multi-layered, right? There's just some straight-up sexism that someone like Shiv, who's the main character we follow, there's also, you know, Jerry and some other people in the corporate world. So we were interested in it all. We were interested in how it was to grow up as a woman in that, fa- that particular family um, with that particular dad and the brothers and the um, birth order and how, how she would have to have decided whether to make herself amenable or not to her dad. And it's a very masculine world that we portray in the show and how you... How you choose to fit in with that or you find yourself rebelling against it so I guess that's in there in terms of the psychological aspect and then there's some really practical stuff about how she gets kind of fucked over for being a woman and being pregnant at the end by Matson and like his sexual attraction to her comes into it as either an excuse or a part of the reasons for why he doesn't end up going with her so yeah hopefully we were thinking about that stuff and that um final scene yeah I, um, I don't find it a sort of submissive act by Shiv we always felt it was a chilly equilibrium but 
but I'm also aware that you could read it other ways and they're good ways of reading it. Can I ask about the decision to not put a beat between Shiv being furious at finding out Tom is the successor at Logan's apartment and then the, the Voltifast in the boardroom. You know, she seems hell-bent on stopping Tom and then the next time we see her, that's changed. Well, you, you actually go, she's there, then they go to the boardroom, she sees her brother sitting in her dad's chair, right. he, he has a rather an air which might not please her, he makes a couple of decisions, and then we see her arrive, and then we see her checking him out in the board. There's, no, you don't see her look in the mirror or have a phone call. Or, That's sort of secondary to what's happening to the action. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. and I guess part of that is a choice of, a dramatic choice to have a more of a surprise and also I guess to gesture towards the unknownness of when you change your mind on a big decision like that what's the thing I think I'm quite happy I know what I think it is and I think Sarah knows what she thinks it is and they might even those two might not be the same but I'm very happy for other people to be like oh what would be the thing that would just is it a personal is it because you never business? Want to, so I always think of they and I know you don't do this but I'm thinking they'd be an ambiguous here is this is this about we're supposed to make our own minds up about whether she's taking it from Kendall or handing it to Tom but you you don't like an ambiguity uh, I don't I'm not, I like an ambiguity you know I don't in the EM Forster way I like a mystery not a muddle so I, I would hate it if it was like mm. oh fuck it let's put it all in let them work it out <laughs> Or, or like, I don't know, like if we, if, we, if we cut to Sarah's face, it's so amazing that people will think it looks smart. Anyway, I like to know, but then I'm happy for it to be a mystery for people to, to figure out, and um, that's what I like. Liz? I thought this was going to be anonymous, so I asked a pretentious question and regret it. <laughs> yeah, I was just struck by how much Shakespeare there is in the show, how, how does that work in the writing process, like in the writer's room, and how, it work, how these intertexts work for you as a writer? Because for a viewer, I find them incredibly rewarding. There's so much plurality there. Like, I just keep thinking and thinking. There's so much Macbeth, like, in the final season, and I think about the aspects of Leah, but, yeah, just, just interested in, in, in why there's so much of that there and, and what it means to you as a writer. King Lear's like there in the show, obviously, he's like this king who's deciding who of his uh, children to bequeath his kingdom on. And so that's, that's felt like quite a thing for the show. I'm not a Shakespearean scholar, so I don't, I, I, I'm not suffused with it. I don't know. Is anyone in the room? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, not, not, like a, not like a specialist. I mean, there's a lot of dramatists in the room who are probably even... And I, and I know Shakespeare, I just not, I'm not... Sometimes I've seen it attributed to us like very complicated um, parallels that are not there in the room. We haven't said, let's take this subplot from Winter's Tale and turn it and reverse the... the um, but there's that direct thing with Lear, and there's also that it's kings uh, and princes and vacillation and, like... Shakespeare obviously was a good writer, and so. <laughs> Breaking news: Jimmy Armstrong says. And so he he took a lot of good themes. So if you're if you, uh, uh, so so you're going to end up hitting some of those themes, especially if you're in a 
potentially quasi-regal oh. environment. So some of the parallels are accidental because we are com coming onto territory which he claimed. I know enough Shakespeare to be able to talk about some of the plays and to talk to actors and there are lots of Shakespearean um, actors who worked in the RSC and elsewhere and sometimes those things are a good shorthand for actors because they get it and I think we talked about it being go him going from Hamlet to Richard III which in a way he didn't in the end but that, was, that felt like that might be an arc of his you know from somebody who was vacillating and uh, unable to decide what he should do to someone who was self-consciously involved in murderous plots that he would be almost that psychopathic awareness of doing evil to get where he wants to go um, uh, so that's a bunch of ways it comes into it. And then there's the line-by-line line thing, which I know enough that sometimes... I, I'm quite magpie-ish in terms of I can often have a bit of a poem or a bit of another thing in my head to inform a scene. And hopefully by the end it becomes a flavour that is not really detectable and isn't like going to end up being... a pretentious reference or something that's going to bump for you because uh, it's dragged in from elsewhere. It's something that is inspiring but then probably gets washed away in the drafts and there are occasionally Shakespeare-y things like that in, in there. Great. Uh, Resham. So this question is how to stay relevant to younger audience, say the 19-year-olds, the 20-year-olds, how do you think like them? How do you... Uh, you know, say, Greg, how, how do you get into his mind? How, how, how does that work in a... Yeah. yeah, given my advanced age, how can I imagine? <laughs> uh, no, it's fair enough. Uh, I thought you were talking about the audience, and that is we've no, never much thought about who would watch the show, although I've hoped many people would, but never sort of thought about different segments of an audience. Uh, in terms of younger people... Yeah, I think when I was young, I used to hate anything that felt like it was written down to me or was mm -hmm. like trying to inhabit a younger person's voice by an older person because it was always wrong. I think better to remember that uh, young people are as various as older people and, and therefore if you throw a rock at a sort of character type and a voice, there's probably a young person who speaks like that and acts like that as well as the go-to version of the sitcom kid listening to music on their airpods and you know not responding to their parents like the the, the you want to avoid those um very familiar versions of youth or or very familiar versions of anything really if you can so but the, so, the ring uh, of truth was like especially important on this show so you would you know as well as the research you'd have consultants was there, there was a trend consultant or somebody who was up to date with what the happening or cool things were in the culture is that right yeah yeah not yeah not not quite like, i guess he would look at things he was more on the rich person circuit was it fun the days those people would come in and just tell you about stuff and you get to ask them loads of questions um we did the main we we had our business consultant marissa ma used to come to the writer's room and we would like talk to her and like infuse her stuff into the stories. The other consultants generally were like get the script and would ring up and say, "Oh, we got this, and we're going on a jet. How long would it take to fuel up? And would the what kind of food would you get? And like things that might come up and give us details for for cool stuff. And they, they or get, boring stuff. Oh, I'm so sorry. Sorry. And they um, they, do they get paid for that? They yeah. must. And so oh, like yeah. the the rich person gets paid to like be a rich person advising you on rich people. Yeah. Oh, oh well, my God! I mean, the cycle that's, continues. That's, that's so how it works. 
Um, Charlotte had a question. Hi, and um, so to bring it back to Orwell, when Orwell wrote 1984, he was painted as a kind of anti-left person by the press, uh, such that he um, sent out a statement to explain that he wasn't actually anti-left, he was kind of anti-totalitarian. Connected to this, does it annoy you when people see Succession as just a funny show about, about rich people, or say that Tom, sorry to the people that haven't fully finished it, um, won Succession by becoming the next CEO? So the first question was, do we mind when people just think it's uh, funny? No, I don't. I, I don't. No, I don't. Um, people in comedy often have a thing of feeling um, diminished by drama, and that drama gets all the attention, and this is the serious. Thing, and we think in comedy that we're also saying interesting things but also making people laugh. But I also think that people who are enjoying comedies are often enjoying them on more than one level. So a joke, as in the revolution comment, is often quite a complicated thing. And so I find it nice that people like it, like it as a comedy. Um, and Tom winning, yeah, I mean, I don't mind that. It, it's a fact. He, like, he became the guy. I guess I always felt reticent when we were doing the show to like, correct anyone's view of it, correct them, or, or say what, or countermand people's view of it because it just felt uncharitable and heavy-handed and silly. The only one that gets me when I want to write into the newspaper a, a bit <laughs> is the sense that the show might be about how Logan was brilliant and his kids are fuck-ups and like if only everyone was like Logan and you kind of you got to you, you know he knew how to fucking get it done look at that guy <laughs> and, and that's not not in there like he is a more he is a more successful businessman than his kids but he also is capricious and cruel and vexed poor decisions as well as good ones and yeah, I don't see it as a show about like the greatest generation. And if God, if only there were more Logans around, we'd really get stuff moving. Which I know is your feeling. That has always been my view. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's the American take. That's the American way. We've got a few more questions for you. We're going to hit you real fast. You ready? Quick fire. Are you ready? Okay, Jeff, go. Uh, which succession character has read the most Orwell? Ooh, good question. I think it probably would be. Kendall seems to be a reader. Who would be a more damaging president, Jez from Peep Show or Connor Roy? <laughs> Connor Roy. Yeah. Uh, have you adapted anything from succession into your personal wardrobe? Uh, no, but I, it used to be pretty embarrassing because, like, um, whenever <laughs> um, uh, Matthew would come on set and people would be like, oh, my God, look what they've got for him now. I'd be like, oh, I, can, I quite like those chinos. <laughs> Like that little zippy top yeah. there. That's. I think, I think there's I'm a, a touch I'm of one natural, on holiday to you. I'm a natural think. preppy. I, I, yeah. Who'd be more terrifying to be yelled at by, Logan Roy or Malcolm Tucker? Oh yeah. Oh, it's a goodie. Yeah, I think um, I'm gonna go Malcolm Tucker. Thank you for thinking about Do that you agree? so hard. No. Yeah. It's a really difficult one. I, the truth is, and I, I, even though they're both fictional, they would be, they're both pretty, they'd be scary to get shouted at by. Is it scary when the actors 
uh, click into that mode on set. We, we got an email from uh, one of the extras, you know where Logan makes his rousing uh, battle cry speech on the floor of ATN, and they were saying there was, he did some, he let out this visceral roar that oh. they hadn't heard on previous takes, and the whole room kind of tensed up because they weren't expecting it. I think it is when you're there, I'm always watching it on a monitor, and then it's like you're watching TV and you're just going, oh, this is cool, <laughs> this is great. So you don't get that visceral thing. Are you going to go see um, Brian Cox in the West End? Yes. Do you have to pay for your tickets? I don't know yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, have you ever used the name of a real-life enemy for a dickish character in your writing? Uh, no, but I've used lots of friends, including Malcolm Tucker. Uh, Malcolm Tucker is someone I used to play five side with. Almost everyone in the, <laughs> almost everyone in the thick of it is somebody or has got a name from somebody I used to play five side with. Who is Sid Peach? Sid Peach is the nickname of a friend. Was he or she flattered by? Yeah, I checked people in. People always with, are, I right? In with him. Um, which current TV show is as good as Succession? <laughs> What? Oh, so, yeah, <laughs> totally, 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 but totally, totally. Uh, he, he can't say that. Oh, uh, that's, uh, that's a tough one. There's lots of like, shows I like around. I was thinking of good ones that, well, I was thinking about other shows and, and satire. I was thinking of um, I Hate Susie and I May Destroy You, Fleabag. Um, I really like Women, 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 women. We get it. You like women. We get it. You're into, um, he supports White women. White Lotus, Happy Valley. Um, aside from Mencken, which succession character holds the most terrifying political views? Roman. Okay. Uh, why didn't you make a placard for the Writers Guild <laughs> Solidarity thing in London yesterday? Uh, I saw a really good one, which is a, a bit of a writer's joke, which was, uh, you, sh you, you should make the next draft of the deal more likeable. <laughs> <laughs> We've established it. Oh. This final one? Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah not great. No, it's not the best. Okay. Is there another, is there another option? I've got, I've got a question that okay, I would like to end on. Okay, this isn't rapid fire, but we'll, we're moving, we're moving, we're moving. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay, I would like to know personally, all of the, the references throughout Succession to the bad time that Shiv was having when Tom entered, mm -hmm. you don't need to tell us what that was, but do you know what that was? Yeah. Fine. Thank you guys so much for coming tonight. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in the Jesse Armstrong.